Hello, I'm Laura Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. This week's episode is special to me personally because it features the chefs behind some of my favorite restaurants and cookbooks, Sarit Packer and Itmar Srulovich, the husband and wife team of London's Honey & Co. After years of working in some of the best kitchens in that city, Sarit and Itamar opened their own restaurant, Honey & Co., featuring the food they grew up eating in Israel. It was a huge hit, winning many awards, including the Observer's Best New Restaurant Award in 2013. Soon Honey & Co. was followed by cookbooks and more restaurants, and even a podcast based on the food events they host in their deli, Honey & Spice. Their latest book, Honey & Co. at Home, focuses on the food Sarit and Itamar cook for themselves and for their friends. I interviewed them in the shop last month, so I'll let you listen on for all of the gushing that I did about how much I love what they do. Here's Sarit Packer and Itamar Srulovich and Honey & Co. at home. I feel like this all started about five years ago in 2013. So my husband is British, and so we go to London at least once a year to sort of see his family and all those kinds of things. And we, of course, like to go to restaurants. So we ate in Honey & Co. not long after it had opened. I had the book larder Instagram, you know, I like take pictures of where we're eating and things like that. And so they brought out, when we were at Honey & Co., this sort of beautiful mezze, and I was like, oh my God, I have to take a picture. And I tagged, you know, at Honey & Co., and I just put my phone away. And the next thing I know, Itamar is sort of coming up the stairs and, and going, Who's book larder? <laughs> so we were all sort of very keen to be on social media at that point, I guess. But I threw myself at them basically and was like, if you ever want to come celebrate your books, you know, I love what you're doing and, you know, please come to Seattle. And as it turned out, Bridget, who runs their deli, is from Seattle. So they had a double good reason to come and visit. So thank you for, thank you for being here. It's our pleasure. It's all our pleasure, truly. <laughs> It's a real pleasure. To get started, I wanted to kind of go back a little bit before we talk about the books. Could you each just tell us how you got into cooking? From my point of view, kind of cooking is a big part of everyday life uh, in Israel, both from Israel. And I became a vegetarian at 10 and none of my family were. And the only way to eat any interesting food was to actually start cooking for myself because otherwise I just got to eat the sides. Um, and I, I just got more experimental, actually. I bought a couple of vegetarian books and started cooking. And the more I enjoyed it, the more I cooked and the more I cooked for, for everyone else in the family as well. And they were enjoying it. And then I kind of started doing like small kind of events for friends or cakes and stuff like that. Got really, really involved and kind of probably by 18 decided it's probably what I was going to do for a living, which my parents didn't think was really a living. And um, <laughs> then we, we have to go to the army because it's like compulsory yeah. army service and I ended up in this kind of funny little base with a kitchen and just a few girls and we kept cooking. So it got even kind of actually my decision became stronger there. And as soon as I left the army, I went to the UK to study to be a chef and stop being a vegetarian at the same time. Because <laughs> I decided that if I'm going to take it professionally, I'm going to start eating meat. So I trained in a chef school and then got kind of into the whole 
Michelin star kitchens and stuff like that mm. and did the whole proper hardcore kitchens and then went a bit easier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How about you, Itamar? Mine was completely an accident, I think. Because like so you said, you know, we're, we're, where we're from, people cook, you know, and children cook and you, you're never far from the kitchen and the activity. And so when I was looking for a job, I said, okay, you know, I can be in the kitchen and I can do that until I decide what I want to do with my life. And then uh, I was fortunate or unfortunate that know to end up in an incredibly good kitchen a really really good kitchen in a cafe in Tel Aviv that was you know stunning food and we would make everything ourselves and we would get amazing produce and serve really delicious food and I was kind of a little bit hooked but I still thought that one day I'll figure out what I want to do with my life <laughs> then we started traveling and we came to London and I still thought okay you know what am I going to do with my life and then after I don't know 10 12 years in the kitchen I said Yeah, I guess this is what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> so I might as well take it seriously. Yeah. We decided to sit on our own. So at what point did you two start cooking together? Well, we met in a kitchen in Israel. So maybe 16, 17 years ago. Maybe 18, actually. I don't know, something like that. We met in a kitchen. We were working together and then secretly started dating so that nobody would know um, until one of the chefs caught us in a movie together. Uh, so we were outed. So I actually left the job. Yeah, not because of that. But. No, not because of that. And then kind of when we moved to London, we kept finding ourselves in the same jobs because it's easier. As chefs, you work really long hours and if we wanted to see each other... It kind of made sense to be in the same kitchens, at least. So we went to the Oxford Tower together, and then... Where, where we met our delightful yes, Bridget. Yes, where we met Bridget. That was 15 years ago. And then afterwards, Itamar uh, moved to Otolenghi. And once he was working there, kind of said to, to Yotam, oh, my wife's a pastry chef, maybe you want to meet. And we met, and then I joined. So it kind of, actually, in most of our jobs, we've worked in the same... Yeah, kitchens. So it was quite a natural thing to open together. Yeah, which is re actually really important that we did. We didn't. Yeah. I didn't think about it at the time, but like running a business together, or even cooking together, is a lot. You know, I don't yeah. think you know. I've seen a lot of people that just no, like even <laughs> not a married couple, just like friends or what yeah. have you. And we kind of, I think, because maybe that was the. This is how the relationship started. So it was very. It was comfortable for yeah. us. And so why London? It was the easiest one. My parents are British that moved uh, to Israel before I was born, so I had a passport. So we kind of, it was supposed to be the first stop on the way. Yeah. We thought we'd move to London for six months and then go on to Spain and then France. And yeah, that never happened. <laughs> yeah. um, it just like seems like... A Our life is yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like bumbled into this. There's not yeah. a lot of planning in our life. Yeah. It just kind of happens. But yeah, so we we thought we would move on, but then... By the time you settle and you start making some friends and you have a flat, you think, why am I, why would I up sticks again? And we love London. Yeah. Uh, we were having a lot of fun. So it just made sense to stay. Yeah. And actually just getting set up in London is horrendously difficult and expensive. And by the time we kind of just managed to find our feet, we yeah. were already kind of rooted and, and actually and quite in love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very poor for a yeah. while. <laughs> But it's, it's very, it's a very, you, you do fall in love with London yeah. and it is... Like no other place in the world, it just and the yeah. food, the food scene there is amazing yeah. because there's just so many influences and it's so accepting and it completely doesn't have this thing of being stuck in this is how we do it and that's the only way everything goes and it's very liberating to cook like that. Did you have any sort of really terrible jobs when you got to London? First job of mine, I didn't enjoy much, but it's not the 
fault of the job. I just didn't fit very well into that kitchen. I went into a very classic English Jay Shiki's, which is a proper fish restaurant. And I had been managing places in Israel before, but when we came back to London, was I'd had a gap of like maybe three years since I left London the first time. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, well, three years in Israel, that means you haven't worked. And I kind of had to go down like two or three levels in what I was doing. So I kind of ended up just like kind of in a kind of regular position, but I found it quite boring. So it wasn't for me, and I moved pretty quickly, and that's when I moved to the Occitan. Yeah. Like my first job in London was so strange. It was kind of in a, do you remember, in Battersea? Yeah, in a deli thing. Yeah, in a kind of industrial unit in the middle of nowhere by the park. I don't know, working for like an Italian import company, I would cook some lentils for them. I don't know what I was doing there. <laughs> but that was... That wasn't very long, though. Yeah, that was like two weeks. <laughs> Yeah. It's it's, a str- it's it's strange to move countries because especially when it's a country that isn't considered, I suppose if you move from the US to England, then what you've worked in the US would count as something. But Israel kind of seemed like, what is Israel? What, you know, where is it? Like? Where is it even? Yeah. So that didn't count as anything. Not, now it's probably quite different. But I, th- I think 15 years ago, that was very much the case. Yeah. Well, and working at Otolenghi would have, you know, they would have valued what you brought from working in Israel. I don't know. You know, when we joined, it wasn't very... Middle Eastern at all. If anything, yeah. I would say it was more, more kind of Italian, Italian or Asian. Asian. I don't. I never thought when I joined there. I never thought of it as any kind of Middle Easterny yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, it's more kind of a Middle Eastern sensibility rather than the actual content of what's on the plate. So, what did you both do at Otolenghi? Uh, I used to run the whole pastry section for the company. So it's, it's five locations, and then the bakery and quite a lot of going around between teams and and managing separate uh, teams, which is a challenge as well. And then uh, setting up the bakery, which was like a production unit for it, which is really interesting to do. And was was traveling around London with a little trolley suitcase. Yes. It was like I had all my equipment with me. Like a... Little Sally. (laughs) That's true. Sally Forth. Anyway, that was the bag. Yeah. And then after, I think about after three or four years of doing that, I kind of said to them, I think I need a change. And they were saying, oh, and we're just doing this new project. And uh, they were opening an opie and they said, why don't you take this as kind of a, a project to manage and set up and open the kitchen and stuff. And I was excited because I was going back to food because I'd kind of been in pastry for a while. And I was excited by it. But I also told them that we were already looking for a place for ourselves. So we kind of knew it was a good deal for us for like, I would set it up for six months, then do the first year and then leave them to do our own thing, which was really amazing because I got to learn how to open a restaurant yeah. on their money, <laughs> which is <laughs> the best thing you could do. Um, and then, yeah. And then after the first year, I, I moved and Itamar was looking for a thing. Yeah, I was head chef in the original shop and then in the new shop that was open in Borgravia. And then I said, yeah, we're going to start our own thing now. And, and, you know, I said, yeah, it's going to take us a couple of months to find a shop. (laughs) (laughs) And it didn't take, like, it took us two years to find. Yeah, it was really, really hard, especially that we had, like, zero money. And we were, like, nobodies or, you know, nobody knew who we were. So you wouldn't have access to see like what's available what's on the market mm-hmm. so I was kind of going and looking at places and I was you know I was private chefing at the time which was really nice kind of cushy gig and I really I thought that in six months we will have the place up and running and everything will be hunky-dory but it really wasn't it was so painful <laughs> it was so so dispiriting we were looking to open in our neighborhood where we live in South London which is a kind of used to be grotty but now is 
quite up and coming. Yeah, it's quite nice. So <laughs> we would go and see like hovels, really <laughs> such disgusting places in in back alleys. We would want them, you know. We'd put an offer, and they would be like, "Who are no, you?" <laughs> yeah. No, even like people wouldn't even come back to you. You'd be like calling and calling. It was really. Soul destroying, and actually very close to losing hope in the whole thing, weren't we? Hmm. It was becoming quite frustrating, and I had quite a good job, and I was thinking whether <laughs> I should continue this kind of thing. But we were lucky, and we went for a walk, and we saw this neighborhood, Fitzrovia, which yeah. you've been to a lot, and it's a beautiful neighborhood, and it had all these empty shops, which should have been a warning sign, but in our heads was amazing. There's all these empty shops. We should take one of them, and uh, that's what we did. Basically, we. Kind of completely changed areas, went to look, uh, I think this was the first place we went to look at. Yes, actually, when uh, we in Pretoria, outside of Yeah, and South we, London, we yeah. walked in and we loved it and we completely saw how we could do what we wanted to do there. Mm-hmm. Even though it was like kind of bright orange and green and very fluorescent, uh, we kind of said, okay, a bit of paint and we can open and that was nice. And we did that quite quickly once we did. Yeah. Maybe about eight weeks since, like from the moment we got the keys to opening. But but it, two it years is. and eight weeks. Well, yeah. it's, a, it's a very different kind of thing, it, a lot of planning. A t- it's a quarter of this shop, not even. It's like tiny, tiny, tiny. It's ten tables. And we had the kitchen downstairs that was rubbish but working. It was not a good kitchen. But it was like kind was of okay. a domestic kitchen. And there was a massive fridge, actually. Crazy big fridge. I don't know why. Which is still there. It yeah. used to be a butcher shop back in oh, the back days in or the something. Days, yeah. yeah. It's a nice old butcher kind of walk-in thing, the wood paneling, and we just liked it. It felt very... It felt right. And then, you know, there's only so much work you can do on a small room, you know. (laughs) Just three coats of paint to get rid of the fluorescent orange, and we were fine. So what were the early days like? We almost burned the place down on the first day, because we thought we would do cook breakfast upstairs in a tiny little bar, and we had this, like, little electric... Hope that almost set on fire on yeah, the first which we day. Did, we, we, just got, we just bought it and we didn't think, oh, maybe we should test it before we open the door. No. So the first time we tried it was when, because it was really, so we just opened the door. And people came and in people and we came were like, in. We're like okay. why are they coming in? Like, <laughs> we don't even know what we're doing yet. Why are they yeah. coming in? But it was really like that. It's, it was very, very fortunate, the location, actually. Yeah. And we didn't realize how much. And we started the day in a kind of very clear thing. I would bake some cakes and eat them and make some bread. And Itamar would cook food. And then he would go upstairs to serve tables. And I would go into the kitchen and serve the food. And we hired Rachel. If anyone's been to ours, knows Rachel because she's our first employee. And now she's our uh, manager. And she welcomed people. And she was just really lovely with everyone. And more and more people started coming. And it was quite quick before we were like, wait, wait, we can't do this alone. Which was always the idea. The idea was like this kind of, you know, yeah, I mean, kitchen they, serving and yeah. not not ever hiring anyone else. <laughs> we didn't have like grand ambitions. We just wanted to have just our own place cook, yeah. and not have any bosses and yeah. just do our own thing. Did you always know you wanted to do your own thing? I think it's, it's kind of a, yeah, it's kind of a natural trajectory. Maybe not. I don't know. But I did. Yeah. 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 For me, it was a harder leap to make because it's a lot. You have to put all your money in. You have to put all your kind of entire energy and, and kind of aspirations and you don't know how it's going to, to pan out. And I was a bit more scared to do it. I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't the two of us together, no. I don't think. But aren't you glad? I am glad now, yeah. But, it, you know, uh, it was I very, don't... very scary for the first kind of six months probably yeah. because you just don't know what's going to happen with it all. It's much nicer to be your own yeah, boss for sure. Much, I mean... <laughs> 
it's like a buses suck. So <laughs> you know, we're really glad. They don't always, right, Bridget? I mean, even the, <laughs> I mean, even the good ones. Yeah. So then, how do you try to be a boss that doesn't suck? What's your approach? It's uh, what do we call it? The syndrome. Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> This yeah. is what we think it is. We just make them they're think that trapped, they're happy. Yeah. <laughs> they're really, trapped in just, their head. Yeah. We're thinking this is a great place to work, but in reality, yeah. we control. No, I, I don't know. It's, <laughs> we were very lucky. We very much wanted to run it I mean, as a not, family yeah. place, very much in like getting people as involved as, as they can be and really feeling that they have an invested part in it. Like Julia, who's our head chef now, was our... Second, third employee after, because we had Georgia in the I'm middle. Not, I'm, not Georgia. Counting no, I'm not counting Carlos. I'm not counting Carlos. No, the KP maybe, yeah. yeah. No, but Georgia was first. She was yeah. our pastry chef for a long time, and she had worked with us before. And then Julia had worked with us before and asked to join. So at the beginning, it was a lot of people that, and Bridget, we obviously knew from before. So like a lot of these people we had worked with along the years. We've been chefs for 20 years. It's a long time in the industry. And if you enjoy working with someone and you open a place and somebody wants to come and work with you, I think that's quite a natural way to do things. So quite a lot of people we knew before anyway, and then the ones that kind of really enjoyed it stayed. And it is a bit of a crazy kind of company. Yeah, I mean, it's not, not an easy place to work at all. But uh, I, don't, I don't know. We what don't makes have, them stay? Yeah. No, it must I don't. be your food. Maybe I the think, food, I yeah. The food. I think it's the, a lot to do with the ingredients and the fact that, you know, there is, there is it's really, in this industry, it's really soul-destroying if you work in a, in a rubbish place. Because you need to believe in what you, you work so hard and you need to feel proud of what you do. And this is something that we would, I think we can offer. But also, you know, we're, we're, we're very demanding and we're always kind of, there's always two voices at you. Yeah, Bridget is nodding in the <laughs> yeah. No, there is. A, but, yeah. And really, there also been a lot that haven't lasted, which, you know, but they're... It's good as well, you know, it's, a, it's, it's good. Every person we feel has bought something, taught us something, and some of them move on and some of them stay. And yeah. it's good in any kind of, it's, it's a nourishing kind of environment and it's good to get new blood into it all the time as well. We've, we've not cracked a new formula. <laughs> That's the... okay. So you won't be writing the fourth book, won't be your business book. No. <laughs> it, it might be, I think. Oh. Like, not what do you mean? You're working one. on the fourth yeah, one already. Not fourth it's not one, about that. It's like, yeah... How to open a restaurant in 10 life-destroying steps. That'll be, that'll be a pitch. It'll be a pitch-turner. Now you have three restaurants and three books and a column in the Financial Times and a podcast. And you're both very hands-on people. So how do you manage all of this? And where does the writing fit in with the restaurant running? At midnight. <laughs> in the, this morning today, I was kind of Sending rushing a column, to fire. Yeah. There's two of us, and that yeah. helps a lot. And the Financial Times is not as hard as it would seem. We do one shoot day a month. We shoot four recipes, and they come out throughout the month. So that's pretty much like a nice thing. It looks like we're there all the time, but actually we only do one day a month on that. The restaurants, we have amazing staff in them, and we can hopefully guide them to do what we want to do. But we are able to manage them more rather than before. If we were just working now, we have a bit of time to actually manage our managers and they manage their stuff, which is a good way to do it, I think, which has been a, learn yeah. a steep learning curve for us on how yeah. to do that. The podcast is just a fun kind of thing, which we started as a, as a way for us to invite people we wanted to speak to because we needed something for our souls as well. So we just started inviting people we really wanted to talk to and then we just started recording it. So 
that was kind of a natural thing. It's all pretty much a natural growth. And the restaurants are all like five minutes walk from each other. So it's I not... That, that's the main thing, yeah, actually. Yeah, we don't have to spend time commuting. Once we're there, we can do all of them in a day. We can spend a good amount of time with each one and still have a good, you know, time to spend in the office, which is like our vortex of... Uh, yeah, this is Vortex of evil, time. where you just like get sucked into the office and uh, 10 hours Days disappear. And weeks disappear. <laughs> Suddenly it's like 2021. Yeah, but, but that's it. And the two of us really helps. Like, yeah. it's just so much easier. The, another kind of added bonus of all the places really close is that they really support each other. So if Honey and Co. would run out of parsley, then someone will send them more. These things actually, you know, and for the life of the restaurant, it's, it's a big deal because yeah. there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of, you know, things going wrong. So if you have that kind of little support system nearby, it's a big push. It's a big help. What do you want people to sort of walk away with when they come into any of your places? It was always kind of supposed to be an extension of our living room, Honey & Co., because it's so small and it's very tight. And you kind of, the food is very homey. Oh, homey to us. Kind of quite large plates of food and actual food. Not, you know, it's not fruit, you know, it's not, not very, fancy. Very it's, fancy. And that was always the idea that it would be like a place where you sit down and it's like coming to dinner. That's the food you get. And you chat. A lot of people end up chatting to their neighbors or tasting food sometimes from their neighbors, which is really nice. And in London, is really, really nice. And there wasn't really any decor at all. It was white walls. The only thing we invested in was tiles for the floor. Yeah. And that was really all that was, just like something very homey, very comfortable. And that's managed to keep that kind of feel to it. I think throughout, even though the original business plan was for like a proper grill place, which mm -hmm. ended up being the, the, the last restaurant we opened, Honey and yeah. Smoke, which is kind of our original business plan ended up as our last place. And that's supposed to be a restaurant, a grill house. We started originally with wanting it to be very, uh, I don't know how to explain it. Like it's, there's like Israeli diners. You kind of like sit in canteen. these big canteens. Yeah, yeah, you sit in these big rooms with a bit of fluorescent lighting and kind of long strips of tables and you eat and it's all a bit kind of grotty but the food is really nice and we kind of wanted to do that but that doesn't work in London we discovered <laughs> and a couple of refurbs later it looks a bit more uh, grown up and a bit less industrial and that works for London better so it's changed a few times yeah, but I think if if someone kind of leaves the restaurant feeling you know that they've been looked after and that they're I think more than the food it's the feeling of you know, care goes into it every step of the way. And that kind of nourishment that is not just on the calorific level, but also, you know, in, in everything that you do. And if someone says, oh, this is a place of kindness and, you know, it's someone, you know, was nice to me and was kind to me, then that's that's a lot. Yeah. You know, not, not just the servers, but, you know, the cooks have yeah. been, you know, careful with the food and... and showed attention and the people who buy it buy, you know, nice food and you feel that attention through the chain. When it gets to the customers, it's a great feeling. It's yeah. a really, really nice feeling. So the first book was the Honey and Co. book sort of about the restaurant. Second one was Golden, the baking book. And this is sort of how you cook at home. Mm -hmm. So what did you want to accomplish with this? Well, it is exactly as it kind of says on the title. We, we it spend so much time kind of creating these restaurants and being at work and writing about food of work and everything like that. That And this book that we actually sold to our publishers was about the deli, where, where Bridget is, was it all going to be about deli food and stuff like that. And when we started writing it, that's not what we fancied writing. We suddenly wanted to reconnect to 
to what was going on in our house and like try and spend a bit more time there and re-invite friends, the ones that were still talking to us after the kind of uh, few years that we'd spent just working and just like enjoying cooking again and just having fun with it. Not, it's not, I mean, it is mostly Middle Eastern, but it's also not, if that makes sense. It's kind of the way our food has evolved into the UK and how, how we cook now, what we eat there, what you can get there. It kind of is more natural and it just felt more natural for us to write about what's going on in our life now. And it's kind of also divided in that way. It's all about how we would eat because there's things that we eat when it's just the two of us for dinner and we want it to be quite quick and after work and, you know, we want it to just happen. <laughs> and then there's things that we would make for friends or things that we would really kind of do over a weekend where we take our time and it's about the enjoyment of the process where it can be a cake that you just want to kind of as the weekend goes slice another kind of slice off of it and stuff like that so it's really it felt really lovely to do that again to now to be able to have yeah. a, a weekend to be able to kind of invite people over yeah and I think it was really nice as well to kind of look at our you know our life outside of work through the food that we make and how it shows up that was really enjoyable and and actually relaxing yeah it was all shot in 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 our home all cooked at home by us and shot by the wonderful patricia navian who's done all our books she mm-hmm. does your columns too yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 and we have a very nice kind of and she goes on holidays with us yeah <laughs> <laughs> she's just like why why are these she's also got the syndrome yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Itamar, you wrote the introductions for each of the chapters. And so it sort of starts, you know, for the two of you, for friends, for the weekend, for a crowd. I get the sense from all of the introductions that you guys still live a fairly hectic life, it sounds like. But Um, who doesn't, you know? Oh, exactly, yeah. Everyone does. This is life. And you start with a story about how you decided sort of you wanted to start cooking at home more and you wanted to make dinner for Sarit. Can you tell us about how that went? Very, very sadly, it's, it's a true story. Because we, we were kind of, like Said said, we're just kind of coming back from, you know, opening. In 2016, we opened the big restaurant and we opened the deli as well in the same year and we moved house. It was a lot. Then we started to resurface a little bit and, and we started to kind of reclaim our life in our kitchen. I thought would be nice to have like a romantic dinner as, you know, just like that you see in the movies and, and on TV, which we never, ever, ever do. We never. We always kind of chuck something in the pan and eat it on the sofa. You know, we never, ever do the kind of cantaloupe. I said, you know, fine, we'll do it. We'll see, like, what it does, what it happens. I thought, you know, this is kind of the one thing that I can do. So I tried this really elaborate Chinese recipe, which, I again, we, I never, ever cook from, like, follow recipe or if but something... you the book, yeah. Yeah. It's really, Dunlop, yeah. yeah. It's really, really painful because you need to take, like, a whole fish and you cut it in the middle... And then you get like a bit with the bone and without the bone. So complex. And then you need to poach it. And I was, you know, kind of drinking a little bit as I was. <laughs> I was drinking the marinade as well. Check that. <laughs> I had to make a new marinade. And, uh, you know, I was kind of so engrossed in the exact procedure of it. And I said, all right, you know, that's going to be ready. And I'm going to, you know, make the house nice. I got like, you know, the candles and that because, you know, I thought I'll keep it dark and then it won't look so messy and, you know, things like that. And then, you know, and so it came and I, I, you know, switched the candles on and she was like, Suspicious. what happened? Yeah. You know, what have you done? Why are there candles? Why is there food? What's going on here? She was like super suspicious. What have you got to tell me? Yeah. And then, 
And then it all went downhill from there. Like, and then all hell breaks loose. You're gonna need you're gonna need to read the end of it if you want to know the end. But it just like got so so much worse. Yes. And, and there's also a lesson in marking your salt and your sugar yeah. in your, in your oh. Yeah, and <laughs> the neighbors got involved. It was, it was really bad. It was really bad. Yeah, but, but actually, this is, this is when I realized, like, when it happened, I realized what this book is about, what it needs to be. It's, you know, these mess-ups and, you know, actually, because a lot of, oftentimes you would flick through the cookbook and it's all kind of so perfect and glossy and yes you know we want that you want that kind of aspirational but actually you know everyone's life is such a mess and if you know if you get a night that you can cook it should be pleasurable you know it's a celebration really of life so it's you know we wanted to be honest to that and that that was fun it was fun to do as professional chefs how do you think about writing for people who are cooking at home the first book actually started because we started hiring chefs and none of them are middle eastern and we really wanted them to cook our food. And it was really important that the recipe translates to our food because otherwise people would come to the restaurant and eat something different. So it was, that, that wouldn't fly. No. People will be it, it's, it's, yeah. it's not that. And so the recipes had to be extremely clear. And that was kind of our start into understanding how to, how to write it to be clear because we had all this feedback back from chefs saying, oh, cooking something and it doesn't come out. And then you can say... Well, why didn't you follow this? So you kind of start to find out where these problems are. And then the Financial Times has really helped with that because the feedback is also very immediate. If somebody doesn't understand or if you've missed a really important part of information, then they'll write to you and be like, I don't understand. But you haven't said do that or do that. And so that really kind of fine-tuned it. So really, I write most of the recipes and they're written in a way of how I would explain it to one of my chefs if I wanted the result to be exactly what I'm making because otherwise they can't do it. So, so that was really all they are. So they're a bit conversational and a bit kind of little things along the way that you need to feel or touch or smell as well as, as just a, a recipe and instructions. To but I, I think it's really, you know, there is the genre of, you know, the Nigel Slater that's saying, oh, yeah, grab a little bit, is a little bit, this, which I love, you know, and works for me. But I think when you follow a recipe, it's kind of a contract, you know. We promise that if you follow the instruction, you will get this result. You will get a delicious dinner that will hopefully get you some compliments. That's kind of the, the promise, right? Because just like whipping up some pasta and tomato sauce, everyone can do. You don't need a recipe for it. When you follow a recipe, you make a commitment and we need to rise up to it. So I think you do want to have very clear instructions and very clear measurements. And then, you know, everyone here is a very competent cook. They can do with it what they want. Second know? time. <laughs> Second time. We always... Joking my mum is the uh, worst yeah, one. Because so my mum... She would say, oh, yeah, I, I did your cake. I did their wonderful cake. It was really, really nice. But I used, you know, peaches instead of plums. I used the walnuts <laughs> instead of almonds. I used wholemeal flour instead of regular flour, sugar for honey. And it's like a completely different thing. <laughs> and we're like, okay. That's... You do you. You're know, wonderful. <laughs> it's not our cake, but... <laughs> So if somebody were sort of picking this book up for the first time and they don't cook very much right now, where would you suggest that they start? Yeah, I would definitely start with the, for two, the two of us because really when it's the two of us, it's simple because we come back from like a 10, 12 hour day, sometimes more, and we don't want to like, we don't want to take time. And also In, we have nothing at home. Either. That's true. That's right. Like an no, empty fridge and we yeah. just want to have dinner. So that's the, that's like the chapter. Leaks, we what do we have? Leaks. leaks. Yeah, sometimes yeah. we have leaks. 
Sometimes celery. Anyway. But then, you know what? I, <laughs> I have, like, for the longest time, I never understand why we always have leeks. But now I realize that all the, like, all the vegetables you actually cook, like the broccoli, you eat it, the cauliflower, you eat it, the sweet potatoes, you eat it. Yeah. And then the leeks, what do you do with it? So it stays there in the fridge. <laughs> But it's ever. true. It's like all the all the real vegetables, like you know, cauliflower. You make like cauliflower fritters, cauliflower cheese. That's like a, a meal. Broccoli, you have something. But <laughs> this is what keeps me up at night. Why is there a leak in, leak in my fridge? So that's the place to start, and then. <laughs> Like, he's just like making himself laugh. Uh, sorry about that, guys. And then the cakes are all pretty straightforward, I would say. Maybe by one or two that have got a, a couple of stages, but quite simple. Uh, because at home, I wouldn't go to like great lengths to make very elaborate cakes. That's for work. Even then, they're not super elaborate. And then there are a few that take a bit more work, for sure. But I would start with all the ones that are for us. And all the dips are easy enough. It's, pretty, it's a pretty straightforward book, to be honest. It's not got anything about there's four recipes that take a bit more work but i also really wanted to include them because they are so worth the time so what questions does everyone have are you still in that original uh shop that you found yeah yeah, yeah. so that's our first one and that's a the 25 seater it's very small and then we have just across the road from that the little deli which is also our office which kind of we took to be the office and became the deli (laughs) and uh, then just down the road is the new one yeah but the deli is the nicest not that, Not that he's favorites, but... <laughs> but what they're describing as little deli, just to be clear, is like it's sort of like floor to ceiling shelves almost. It, it feels like that with the most wonderful like kitchenware. I got the most gorgeous knife there. You can buy all the jams. You can buy spice blends. It's like. It's not like go in, just go in and get a sandwich or something. Like it's a, it's no, a really you lovely. You can browse, browse it online as well and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, and yeah, see yeah. like the whole thing. Yeah. But don't think it's worth shipping to the U.S. But you can have a look where, where you want to come <laughs> to. Yeah, tahini, it's worth shipping. Yeah. It's hard to find good tahini here. Yeah. No, but this is kind of, the Delhi is, is kind of our, our fantasy. That's our dream place because this is what we've all, always dreamt of having, you know, just beautiful produce and really stuff that's hard to find and, you know, lovely cookbooks and food books. It's, it's, it's fun, yeah. What happened? You, you had honey and cola and then you said, oh, too small? Or too small. Yeah. Okay, so. Too small, but too small to an extreme. So... First of all, we're not small people, and we had, you know, we had hired a pastry chef, Georgia and Julia, who's our head chef now with a, of everywhere, and they wanted to do more. They wanted to grow, but with the two of us there, like, what are they supposed to do? Like, we boss everyone around. We, you know, get in the way and stuff. And the only way for them to stay with us was for them to progress in levels. And we just said, okay, we start to look. And the the second restaurant, which is actually the third. Just took, it's a bit, London is very difficult in property, but it took two years as well to sign contracts, to get everything happening, to refurb it, because it was a, a tile display shop before. So to get extraction in, to get design, to get planning, all these boring things that you have to it do. Was yeah. It was it, really hard. And then we were just like, this is just not going to happen. We just, we can't afford it. We were never going to get it. And this shop became available across the road. And we were like, Ooh, let's just put an offer on this and maybe that will happen before the other one. And then they both happened at the same time. Oh. And we opened I think in, at the same week almost. The signing, yeah. yeah. We opened in June, the deli, and in October, the big restaurant, and we moved flat in August in the middle. So it was like the maddest six months of our lives. Different menu, different 
different, but but inspired by the same things. So in Honey and Smoke, we cook on a grill fire. So we cook on, you know, on live fire, which is really nice. Everything gets that really smoky kind of flavor. And in Honey and Co., it's much homier because the kitchen is like a home kitchen. It's got a four, you know, four burner hob. It's not even like an American home kitchen. It's like a very rubbish English home kitchen. (laughs) If it was an American one, we could do so much more. But it's a really kind of rubbish little kitchen. So it's very homey food. A lot of kind of stews and slow cooked and uh, salads and anything that can happen kind of not at the last minute. And then the deli is kind of where we can play. So we're cooking something, we cook a bit extra, we do this, we do that, and that all ends up in the deli. So like big plates, big bowls, big stews. And then you come and get your lunch in the little tub. Yeah. Your little packet. <laughs> Off you go. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what advice would you give to your husband and wife about opening their first restaurant? Okay, how long have you got? <laughs> No, I, I would say what Ethan said before about working together before you do it, for sure. Absolutely do not go into it if you have not spent a good year, two, three working together. And it's quite easy to do. You go, you, both of you find a job somewhere and you work for someone else and you experiment on that because it is hard. And then in, t- in time and as things have progressed, we've kind of done a bit of a separation of, of responsibilities, I would say, or places that we... Each one of us has a place where we're the final word on, even though we can really? argue about it Where's like 10 mine? times. Oh, you don't get one. But yeah. apart from Itamar, that is. <laughs> Each one of us, except you. Yeah. yeah. Each one of us has a... No, don't be like that. No, but um, it is true. We, we, we find it really hard to be working on the same thing. Yeah. So, because we would... Our, our knee-jerk reaction, I think that's true for every couple, is to manage each other. You know, there would be a lot of people around us that need direction, but we would be telling, I would be telling Sarit what to do and she would be telling me what to do and everything would go to the pot. So it's really important to understand who's doing what and then to completely leave them to it and completely trust them. Because, you know, like Sarit said, I, w- I, would, I would not be, you know, what she does, she does. What I do, I do. And if, you know, if she will have a say in something, she would be quite cautious about how she phrases oh, it. yeah. And, and vice versa, but it's okay because you, you can't deal with anything. With but also everything. we're brutally honest about everything. There's no, we do tell each other if we think we're making a mistake completely. Yeah. We'll still let someone make a mistake, but it's very, very clear. And with all the kind of difficulties of it, it's also amazing because the only other person that wants the same things as much as you do is a partner that's in it for the same kind of thing because you're completely invested in it. And if it doesn't go right, then it doesn't go right for both of you. This is your entire life for everything. So there's nobody that's as invested in the whole thing working, you know, and that's a good thing. No? Yeah, yeah, but definitely work together first Yeah. because really I've seen, we have, we seen, have seen it. And it's, so many people who were, you know, great couples, great friends, they just went into this business together and it, exploded in the ugliest way so get it under your belt get the experience under your belt and someone else is done i hope i'm not scaring you yeah <laughs> i think that's a lovely way to to wrap up our conversation sarita and Itamar, thank you so much for being here thank you so much Thank you so much, Sarit and Itamar, for visiting us in Seattle, and thanks also to Rizzoli Publishing. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Honey & Co. at Home and any other books featured on the Book Larder podcast 
by visiting booklearner.com and entering the code podcast at checkout. And the last time I checked, we actually had signed copies of this book still available, so definitely check that out. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, please visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.